You may open your Bibles to the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. By the grace of God, we want to commence a study of this book of philosophy given to us by the God of heaven, by the most fit writer that could have been provided for it on earth. These are inspired words, but they come to us by the way of a very qualified man who could speak about things that he had observed and he had tried that we will never observe or try like he could. What a book we have called the Bible. This book has history that includes, as it has been mentioned already today, an observer of the creation of the world. So we have an eyewitness account. There were three of them there. And they said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And they wrote down what they saw and did in Genesis, the first several chapters. We have a book that has history of mankind from that day forward. We have a book of prophecy that tells us what's going to happen to man in the future. We have poetry in the Psalms, Song of Solomon. We have, so, we have short, pithy statements of wisdom given to us in the book of Proverbs. We have a book of philosophy here. We have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have apocalyptic literature that describes the destruction of cities, some of which have occurred and more that will occur. This is all in the Bible. It's a wonderful book. I encourage you to delight in it, to read it, to read it every day, to learn it, to hide it in your heart that we sin not against God. Here are two verses that every one of your children should know by memory. These are two of the chief verses of the Bible because they summarize the conclusion of the whole matter and they give the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the last two verses, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Those two verses we start with before we even look into the book of Ecclesiastes because they give us the purpose for the writing. They tell us the conclusion of all that is said. And therefore we need to keep them in mind as we come upon sentence after sentence that may appear to contradict them. It's only because the wise man, the preacher, is writing from a naturalistic viewpoint, and he expects you to know that already. We know it already, and we especially know it clearly because we come from the New Testament, where we have a New Testament perspective and view of things, and that is a great blessing to have. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. The conclusion of everything that Solomon wrote about in the book of Ecclesiastes and everything that he experienced, observed, and tried. The conclusion of all the vain philosophy and traditions of men and of all their opinions and education. He concludes by saying, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the conclusion of the whole matter. When you try to figure out what profit does man have of all his labor that he takes under the sun, fear God and keep his commandments. When you try to figure out life and God's providence and how the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happeneth to them all, fear God and keep his commandments. When you read that the spirit of beasts go downward to the earth, and the spirit of man goes upward to God who gave it, the conclusion of that difference between us and beasts is to fear God and to keep His commandments. When it tells us in the last verse of this book that God's going to bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, then by all means we should fear God and keep His commandments because we're going to give an account of everything we have done relative to Him and His commandments. That is the conclusion of the whole matter. That covers every word that is in the previous 12 chapters. Everything that is said there is concluded with the summary statement to fear God and to keep His commandments. 
And Solomon's going to give us a few hints on the way through the book that no matter if a sinner sins a hundred times, I know that those that fear God shall come forth of them all. In 7.18 and 8.12, he'll give us a few hints. But here's the conclusion to the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. There are no other commandments to keep. There is no other standard by which to direct your life. There is nothing to add to God's commandments. There is no prophet under the sun invented by men, found by men, or imagined by men. It's all in God's Word. Fear God and keep His commandments. He doesn't ask you to subscribe to UNICEF, to join the Humanist Association of America, to be a member of the NEA, or to join PETA. He says, fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. It's not the partial duty. It's not the foundational duty. It's the whole duty of man. Our whole lives should be committed to fearing God and keeping His commandments. And that fear of God is not a slavish fear of terror. It is the filial or son fear of someone that wants to please his father in heaven who created him and adopted him. And he does not want to displease. We start with the fear of God, loving and adoring our father in heaven and submitting our lives into his care and trusting him no matter what he does. And we keep all of his commandments. We don't care what Pope Benedict XVI or any of the popes that came before him command. We don't care what Islam commands or the Koran might say. We keep God's commandments. It doesn't matter what you've ever heard in an ethics class in college or a philosophy class in a university. Keeping God's commandments is the whole basis for life. And there is no competitor to this book. All the writings of the heathen cannot touch it. In 12 short chapters, Solomon deals with so many wonderful topics and teaches us knowledge and truth and wisdom. Delight in the Word of God. And I hope over the next few weeks you'll read two chapters of this book a day. Maybe one in the morning, maybe one in the evening. And every week that means you'll get through the whole book of Ecclesiastes while we take up its phrases one by one. I thank you, fathers in Christ and brothers in Christ, that read three wonderful passages of Scripture to us to, to start our look into the Word of God. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 28. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. And then Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Amen. What wonderful statements those were. In Romans chapter 1, God has revealed enough of Himself through the natural creation that all men are without excuse. But they were blinded by Almighty God in verse 21 and professing themselves to become become wise, they became fools. Professing themselves as wise men, God turned them into fools. They changed the truth of God into a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. They worshipped images made like men and four-footed beasts and even insects. Those are the educated elite in the history of our planet. Wherefore, God also, He had a second blinding to do for them. The first blinding was to blind them to the revelation of Himself in creation. And the second blinding was to confuse them as to what real sex is. And it is such a blessing to read the Word of God and have that kind of an understanding that when a man turns himself against the knowledge of God that's revealed by creation, God blinds him so that he becomes a fool and then rewires him so that he becomes a sodomite. So that when you read about Socrates who taught his pupils Plato and Aristotle, and you find out that the three of them were sodomites, and they lived in a nation that exalted the love between men as the highest form of love for the elite only. You say, praise God for wisdom in the Bible. God knew about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and listen, there are dozens and there are hundreds more. 
There are two nations that God has deprived of wisdom when it comes to knowledge, truth, and the wisdom of God. And it was ancient Greece and it's modern Germany. There, is, there are no two countries in the history, the recent history of man, that are so ignorant as those two nations. More false religion and false gods and pagan reasoning have come out of those two nations than anywhere else. There's so much to think and say before we even get to verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. Did you love Acts chapter 17 that our brother read to you? The Apostle Paul went to the center of learning of that day, Athens, Greece, and there he encountered the philosophers that came and debated with him, the Epicureans and the Stoics. You can, you can read about them and you can hear about them and some of you have learned about them in philosophy classes or other classes in school. Paul met them. And then he took them to task and in a few short sentences he made fools out of them and he told them about our Savior and our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who had been raised from the dead to assure them of one very important thing, that he was coming back to destroy them. He was coming back to destroy the world. The Apostle Paul told them, your religion is stupid. For you to think that God, who created you, can be fashioned out of some metal by art's device is ridiculous. To think that he needs to be put in a temple when he giveth life and breath to all men. That's insanity. You're altogether too superstitious in all things. He let him have it. Let those who want to know what we believe about evangelism read Acts chapter 17. He didn't tell them to invite Jesus into their heart. He told them that the man Christ Jesus was coming to judge them. But there were some that heard about the Lord Jesus Christ and the Creator God, a monotheistic religion of Jehovah Himself, who followed the Apostle Paul out of that assembly, men and women, and they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful declaration. Paul's spirit was stirred within him. When you read anything in our papers or from our textbooks or in our school, schools about the philosophy of men or how they live or the knowledge, what knowledge is or the reason for things in the world, your spirit should be stirred within you because they don't know anything. And every generation they get more ignorant. At least, at least... Ancient Greece had pagan idols. Our present generation isn't smart enough to figure out they ought to have any kind of a deity. They're atheistic hedonists. They're existentialists. I am my own God because I exist. Existence is the nature of essence which gives me the power to decide my own life. Deep. And it leads to nihilism, one of Germany's great philosophies. Nihilism. There is nothing. What do you think it means? Nihilism. The annihilation, there's nothing. You say, well, there's got to be an ex... No, there's nothing. Which leads to idealism. We got to admit that there's something. So the only thing that there is is my thoughts. My thoughts are the only thing that there is. And though I hold my fire, my hand in a fire and it's burned and it causes me great pain, it's only in my thoughts because there really isn't a fire and I really don't have a hand. Idealism. Well, if you were to take one hour of your time and go online and click major schools of philosophy and read the Wikipedia entry for it, it would blow your mind. How ignorant mankind is. And we sit in this little room and we have pure truth, knowledge, and wisdom right here. And those men are adored. They are worshipped. Millions of pages have been written about their foaming hallucinations. Frederick Nietzsche. One of many German pagans. Read them. They're insane. There isn't one thing they have added to the human race except more lies and deceit and vain philosophy. You have within your hands a precious book. 
And the fact that you have the book, you love the book, and that you understand the book is all by the grace of God. Or he could have left you to believe that those men provided light for the human race. The Bible says they have no light at all. There is no light in them if they speak anything contrary to the word of God. Then we had read to us Colossians chapter 2 that warned us to beware of those philosophies, to beware of seducing words, to beware of the rudiments of the world. Because all wisdom and all knowledge is hid in the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We know about a teacher. We have a teacher, the likes of which has never graced this planet. Even he would say when he was on earth, a greater than Solomon is here. In Matthew chapter 12, the Lord Jesus Christ is our teacher. He is our rabbi. He is our master. And we call no one on earth those names in a spiritual way. He alone fulfills that awesome position that he has. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now that is verse 3, which comes after verses 1 and 2 in Colossians 2, where it told us that Paul was praying for them and laboring for them, that they might have the riches of the full assurance of understanding. You can be a farmer. You cannot have educated yourself in the world's educational scope and sequence system beyond a few years. Simply to understand the English language, and you can know from God's words the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Because you learn about God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a man on earth in whose body dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Godhead that created the heavens and the earth was in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those Athenian philosophers didn't understand any of that. They built stupid little idols. They were so ignorant and they were such skeptics. One of their schools of thought is skepticism. Skepticism has as its foundation, there is no real thought, there is no truth, and don't you ever declare anything as truth. If skepticism would ever look at itself, it would have to admit that in itself, it is not a philosophy worthy of your attention because we ought to be skeptical of it. Please, if you ever get bored this afternoon, type in skepticism. Skepticism. Nothing is true. Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It doesn't go through Athens, and it doesn't go through Harvard. It goes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know who He's revealed Himself to in this world? The poor, the base, the foolish. To confound and bring to nothing the wise. Praise the God of heaven. He chose you. He chose the poor of this world rich in faith. James chapter 2 and verse 5. He chose you and gave you the love of the truth. And opened your eyes to it. So that you can know things that the world cannot understand. They aren't even close to understanding. They've made no progress in 6,000 years. All of you children that go to school, when they tell you 2 plus 2 equals 4, and they put two pencils on the left side of your desk and two pencils on the right side of your desk, and they put them together in your hand and say that equals 4, we'll let them go that far. But when they start to explain any reason, any philosophy, or any basis, or the origin of math, you can ignore everything they say, except to get the answers correct on your tests, because they don't know what they're talking about. All knowledge is traced back to God that gave it. If God hadn't put it in our hearts and minds, we wouldn't know how to plant a a corn seed to get a corn stalk to have corn on the cob in the summer. It's all by the grace of God. We wouldn't know about math. You go back and see how early, see if Moses understood math. Go back and take a look at the first five books of Moses and see if in 1500 B.C. there was a knowledge of math. Their philosophy, when they try to tell you the origin of things or the purpose of things or why things happen the way they do, they do not understand. When they try to deal with psychology and how children ought to be treated, they do not understand. They do not understand political theory 
We're going to learn all that in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to learn that childhood and youth are vanity. We're going to learn that old age is vanity. And we're going to learn that everything in between is too. Without God. With God, it can all be wonderful. We can enjoy this world and the world to come. Because the Lord is with us. Ecclesiastes. What does the name mean? For those of you that have ever looked at long words, ecclesiology is the study of the church. Ecclesia is a Greek name for the church. Ecclesiastes is describing an assembly and the master of assembly that would do the preaching. And so you don't need to know that from the Hebrew word koheleth. You don't need to know that from the Greek word ecclesia. You can know it because your King James Bible puts it under the title. Does your King James Bible say Ecclesiastes? And since we've given you a word in a dead language, we'll give you a few words in a living language. Does your Bible say that? Or the preacher. The book of Ecclesiastes means the preacher. It's Koheleth in Hebrew. It's Ecclesia in Greek. But it's the preacher. And he starts right out by saying the words of the preacher. And he's going to call himself a preacher in chapter 1. He's going to call himself a preacher in chapter 12 when he's concluding the book. And he's going to call himself the preacher in between. We have one qualified preacher. Ordained by the living God and qualified to preach like no other man. He's going to be inspired from the first word to the last word. But God qualified him with one great life and abilities and experiences that other men cannot have. And he preaches to us free in the Word of God. We don't have to pay for a university degree at the University of Chicago where our minds can be ruined for the rest of our lives. You don't have to pay. All you have to come. There is no money that can pay for this. It's the truth of God. And we buy the truth and we don't sell it. By humbling ourselves before the Word of God and trembling at its every word. Solomon was a master of assemblies. He was a preacher. Look at chapter 12. If we don't get to Ecclesiastes 1.1, don't get mad at me. We will get to Ecclesiastes 1.1. I got, in my studies of this book, I'm so worked up about a foundation for it, for you to understand it before we even get into it. So that you can rejoice and be excited about what God has put in your hands. If you were to go to one of the universities in our nation and take a class in philosophy, they're going to make you buy at least one book of 700 pages length. It's going to cost you at least $150. And then some dope smoker is going to try to tell you what it means. And you're going to end up in 16 weeks of three hours a week in a three credit course reading about one quarter of that book, and you're going to be totally confused because the man that wrote it didn't understand anything, the man who's trying to teach it doesn't understand anything, and you, the little student, surely doesn't understand anything. And then you get a degree, and you're supposed to be smart. You humble yourself before these 12 little... Do you know how fast you can read the book of Ecclesiastes? 36 minutes. Thank you. You can read the whole book in 30 minutes, and it gives you real wisdom, and it gives you real philosophy, and the number of topics he's going to cover in these 12 chapters are wonderful. Do you delight in God's Word? I am not wasting time right now. I could start in verse 1 right now, trust me. But I don't want to start yet. I want to build your excitement up for this book. God's given you a precious, precious gift. No wonder the Bible says it is more valuable and precious to us than much fine gold, and it's sweeter to our taste than honeycomb. He's going to say wonderful things. He's going to say wonderful things about the world and how stupid they are, and he's going to say wonderful things about the truth and that we can have it by believing these words. Do you know that you've already been given the key to success for a successful life? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For 6,000 years, men have wasted their entire lives sitting around eating garlic and thinking. I'm speaking of Hindus when I say that. And thinking. 
and thinking. And they've never come up with a worthwhile thought because they can't. Do you want to listen to some man's, men's thoughts when the Bible says his heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Who can know it? He can't figure out how wicked he is. That's Jeremiah 17, 9. When the Bible says that God's going to rewire them so that when they think they're wise, they become fools. When they think that the highest love there is on earth is the love between two men. You want to listen to someone like that? God help us. God bless us. God, thank you for your Bible. Thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. If you ever run across the word Ecclesiasticus, Ecclesiasticus, is an apocryphal book of the Catholic Bible. Don't bother reading it. It's written by Jesus, the son of Sirach. It's worthless tripe. It was written 100 B.C. Solomon wrote 900 B.C. No Jew and no Christian has ever accepted the book of Ecclesiasticus. It's apocryphal. Do you know what apocryphal means? False writings. If somebody ever says to you, but Ecclesiasticus is in the original edition of the King James Bible of 1611, you say, you bet it is. You bet. Thank you for noticing that. Do you want to know what all the translators said about it? It's in between the two testaments, and if you'll read the title page of their Bible, they say that the Holy Bible, the Scriptures of God, are made up of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in between those two testaments, they stuck a bunch of books that they called Apocrypha four times on each page. And Apocrypha means false writing. So don't ever get misled by Ecclesiasticus. It's not another few chapters that Solomon wrote to you that happened to have been lost and the Catholics found it. The Catholics haven't ever found anything good. They're the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. This book is inspired by God. Oh, I was going to take you and show you that Solomon was the master of assemblies. Turn to chapter 12. I want to see why he calls himself a preacher. Because he was a preacher. Ecclesiastes. If you read one chapter in the morning and one chapter at night, Monday through Saturday, you're going to read the whole book through several times over the next few weeks. May God help us. To establish the foundations for our lives and our thinking on the book of Ecclesiastes and the rest of the Bible as it helps us interpret it. Solomon begins the book of Ecclesiastes by saying, Vanity of vanities. Sayeth the preacher, all is vanity. And he says the same thing here as he closes out the book. 12.8, verse 9, and moreover, because the preacher was wise... He still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. Those are precious verses themselves. Moreover, because the preacher was wise, because God gave Solomon great wisdom, he still taught the people knowledge. He kept up his teaching of knowledge to the people of Israel faithfully. He gave good heed to their learning so that they had the best instruction possible, and he sought out and put in order many proverbs. About 500 in the book of Proverbs. But if you read the readings for last night, how many Proverbs did Solomon write? 3,000. We have the Song of Solomon, but how many songs did Solomon write? 1,005. The preacher, verse 10, sought out to find acceptable words. And he tells us what those words are in Proverbs 22, 17 through 21, when he says they are the certain words of truth. This preacher that we have to teach us philosophy. We're not sitting at the feet of Socrates. We're sitting at the feet of Solomon by the inspiration of God. Amen. He sought to find out acceptable and certain words of truth, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. This is how confident he was of his own writing, that the words he wrote were the words of truth. Now watch, verse 11. 
The words of the wise are as goads. When you get words of truth coming from a man that is spiritually wise, it's like a goad. A goad was a long stick with a pointed end in which you could poke an ox or a mule and make it go forward because it didn't like that poking in its backside. And the words of the wise, inspired words coming from a wise man are like goads. They poke us and point us in the way of truth and wisdom. The words of the wise are as goads and they're like nails fastened by the masters of assemblies. The masters of assemblies are preachers, public teachers. They're the masters of assemblies. In an assembly, there needs to be someone in charge so that the assembly amounts to something profitable. They're called masters of assemblies. And Solomon was a master of assembly. He was a master of the assembly of Israel and he taught them knowledge and he took good heed. He sought out many proverbs and he wrote songs and he taught the people the words of truth. But notice what he says about those words which are given from one shepherd. The masters of assemblies are the plural preachers that God puts in his assemblies. But what words do they get and where do those words come from? They get inspired words and those words come from one shepherd. We have one shepherd. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. It is God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But he sends masters of assemblies to use the words of truth as goads to direct us into the way of righteousness so that we can have life and we can have it more abundantly here and hereafter. Amen. And they come from one shepherd. Right. Solomon knew the book of Ecclesiastes was inspired because God was upon him and he applied himself to find out what man's purpose was under the sun. The Jews and Christians have always accepted the book of Ecclesiastes as canonical scripture. That means one of the 66 books that we believe was inspired by God. We trust it's every word, and we know it's going to agree with the rest of the Bible. The two Bible books closest to Ecclesiastes are Proverbs and Job. (coughs) Because they're both books that deal with philosophy and how we ought to live as well. Brethren, our need is not for rationalization, it's for revelation. And when I say the word revelation, I am not talking about the book of Revelation, separate from the rest of the Bible. I am talking about what has God revealed to us. When we use the word revelation, we mean what has God revealed. Because Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. And Solomon is going to deal with God's secret things many times in the book of Ecclesiastes. We cannot find them out. You can spend your entire life not even sleeping at night, and you'll never know God's secret things. The last two verses of chapter 7 or 8. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. God has revealed things to us. Man wants to sit around and share. Now, when you go to school now, once they leave the Bible, here's what happens. When you leave an absolute authority, like the Bible, and you go to class, beginning in the first grade, the teacher says, after putting everyone in a circle, Johnny, what do you think? And then after Johnny gives his stupid opinion, Mary, what do you think? And then by the time they get halfway through the class, Johnny has a new idea. He's changed his mind. And so he raises his little tiny hand and says, Teacher, I have another thought on that subject. And so beginning in the first grade and all the way through our universities, they sit around and share ideas. None of which... And all of which amount to nothing. The last thing you should ever want to hear is someone's opinion on a subject. What does the Bible have to say about it? Thus saith the Lord is what we want to hear. That's learning today. Well, what do you think? Class, what do you think? Let's vote on it. But when you vote... Let's not look down on these others because they could all be right. 
Or they could all be wrong. Because really it doesn't matter. Just what do you think? Because the most important love of all is for you to love yourself. And if you'll love yourself and understand that your existence makes you valuable, your existence gives you meaning, and your existence tells you that you can choose to do whatever you want with your life. No one else has the right to tell you what to do with your life. That's existentialism. That's loving yourself. That's what's being taught in our school systems. But the Bible has absolute answers for everything, except matters of Christian liberty. And God limits those by not addressing them in the Word of God. We need revelation. We don't need rationalization. We don't need wise, analytical personalities sitting around in a room, smoking dope to open their minds up, trying to figure out what's right, what's good, what's virtuous, and what the purpose for man is. We need revelation from God. We need God to tell us, I made you, this is why I made you, and this is what you should be doing to please me. And we've already read the conclusion of the whole matter. You got more than they'll ever get in a master's degree or a doctorate degree in philosophy in one sentence from Ecclesiastes 12:13. When the Bible's removed from life, atheism or humanism results. There's no God at all, or man is his own God. Twin theories. If the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Lord, help us. Let's establish our foundation on your word. Why? Why are we speaking so confidently, so arrogantly? Right now, because we are confident and arrogant for God's truth. We will say, and we will say gladly with David in Psalm 131, verse 1, I am not haughty, and I will not exercise myself in matters too high for me. But what God has declared, we will defend and we will declare without apology or compromise. Amen. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus was preaching. His audience was always split. There were the common people that heard him gladly. And there were the educated elite in his own nation, in the nation of God, separate from them that would not accept what he taught, except a few of them like Nicodemus. Jesus saw that division, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven in Matthew chapter 11, and he said, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank thee that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Amen. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. Amen. Matthew eleven twenty five twenty six. And then he went on to explain, No man can know the Father except the Son reveal him to you, and no man can know the Son except the Father reveal him to you. Right. Knowledge and truth and wisdom are dependent upon the revelation of God to us, and God has chosen not to reveal His truth to the educated elite of this world, except to a very, very few small minority exceptions to that rule. The general rule is, the more educated you are in the world, the less of truth you know. The more humble you are when you approach God's Word, the more truth and knowledge you can know. Because God's hid it. Solomon is our author. And what an author we have. The first verse of Ecclesiastes says the words of the preacher. Remember, he was a master of the assembly of Israel, and he sought out good words, and he took good heed, and he taught the people knowledge by words of truth. And he knew they came from one shepherd, God who inspires men. It says he was the son of David. Solomon was the son of David by God's blessing. Solomon's identified by many Proverbs in the book, in the book called, we call the Bible. In the book of Proverbs, we may have 500 or so Proverbs. There's about 900 verses, but some of those Proverbs are extended and, and cover several verses. Solomon taught his people. He understood that his book was inspired when he wrote Ecclesiastes. God gave him great qualifications to write such a book to us. Right. Every word of God is inspired from God and it's by God. God is the author of the whole Bible from the first word of the book of Genesis to the last word of Revelation. However, 
God chose different writers to write different books of the Bible. About 40 writers in total. And those writers he qualified specially for their jobs of writing. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he could write the first books, books of the Bible very well. Paul was qualified as being trained at the feet of Gamaliel, and so he could write against Jewish legalizers very well. Solomon had opportunities we'll never have. Solomon had opportunities that the Greek philosophers never had, that the German philosophers never had. Solomon had great advantage. If simple inspiration doesn't get your attention, and it should, then add to it what kind of a man God gave us for our personal preacher and counselor, and it was Solomon. God loved Solomon. The Bible tells us that as soon as he was born. God loved Solomon and named him Jedediah because the Lord loved him. Jehovah loved Solomon. And he gave him a great father. Solomon was born to a man who had a pretty good handle on philosophy himself. From a little boy, he heard wonderful things from his father David. Proverbs chapter 4 tells us that David taught Solomon wisdom. Right. Hear the words. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 3, David, Solomon wrote, For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. David and Bathsheba loved Solomon very much. He taught me also and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom. When Solomon sat next to his dad at the dinner table, or around the fire at night, or was riding in a chariot someplace, or walking along the road with him, here are the words that Solomon heard from his father David. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Forget it not. Neither decline from the words of my mouth. Proverbs 4, 6, Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee, Solomon. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. No wonder Solomon prayed the way he did when the Lord appeared to him in a vision, in a dream of the night, and said, what, will I, what can I do for you? No wonder he asked for wisdom, because his father had taught him that wisdom was the most important thing he could get in life. Wisdom is the principal thing. When he was a little boy, when David was in good health and was teaching him, before he died and before Solomon became king and before he had that dream. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. Solomon didn't ask for riches or honor in his request to the Lord. He asked for wisdom because his dad had already taught him that if you get wisdom, son, you'll get all the rest as well. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. Amen. That's Proverbs chapter 4, the first nine verses. That's what kind of a father Solomon had. Do you want to listen to philosophy from a man like that? Or would you rather take on a Greek philosopher whose daddy was a goat worshiper? The sacred animal to the Greeks. A goat. Precious. Find someone in the assembly at break time that has ever raised goats and asked them about the intelligence of a goat. Ask them about the aroma of a goat. <laughs> Worshipping goats. Instead, Solomon has David as his father. He is made king over Israel out of all of David's sons by God's choice and David's choice. God gave Solomon wisdom more than any man ever. And hopefully you read some of those verses last night that God gave Solomon largeness of heart like no other. That the known Albert Einsteins of his generation were nothing in comparison to Solomon. Right. That there was no one before Solomon and no one after Solomon that had wisdom like Solomon. So he's David's son. He's king of Israel, God's nation, that had the most enlightenment and truth on earth. He's also given special wisdom by God who enlarged his heart. God adds to that great riches so that he can buy anything that he wants to test. Did you read that silver became like stones in Jerusalem in 1 Kings chapter 4? Did you read that there was no drinking vessel in Solomon's kitchen made of silver because that would be so ugly? 
Everything had to be of pure gold. Did you read about his number of horsemen, chariots? Did you read about the fact that when you sat down and looked at the menu, there were 10 fatted oxen and there were 20 that had grazed in the field? He knew about range fed 3,000 years ago. You go to a restaurant now and for the first time it happened about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, you could get range fed. Did, did any of you read it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Ten fat oxen and ten that were fed in the pasture. Two kinds of beef. There were 30 killed a day for him and his household and his administration. Plus a hundred sheep, plus quite a few deer, various kinds of deer, fallow deer, and fatted fowls. I mean, quite a menu. Quite a menu. Solomon was given riches. You know, if a poor man says riches aren't much, you laugh at him because he doesn't know anything about them. When Solomon says that riches aren't much, he's going to say worse things than that. They're a curse and a bunch of trouble. You can believe it. When Solomon speaks, we can listen because Solomon tried all those things. He had the riches to do it. For 40 years, he had peace. Did you read the verses where it said he had peace? I'm not turning you there. I could. Did you read the verses where it said he had peace all around and that every man could dwell under his fig tree and just sit and enjoy the good life for 40 entire years? He did not have to wage war because God put his enemies at peace with him because all the enemies lined up every year. On Solomon's calendar, on his daytimer, there was a king from everywhere that was even close to Israel and they came every year to bring a gift of tribute and to see if maybe he'd give them five minutes because in five minutes they could learn more about the fish of the sea than by any book they could read. Right. Did, you, did you read all that? Yes. And they just kept bringing money and he just kept getting richer. He never had to sit in a war council and waste his time. He spent his whole life pursuing what is the purpose for man? Why do we have to work so hard? What's the end result of it? What are we here for? Because he had total peace. God gave him that. He was one great looker. How do you know? Because his father and his mother are especially pointed out by the Bible of being great lookers. He had a long reign. He reigned for 40 years. So he, this was a 40-year graduate course in philosophy. And he gives us this, the conclusion to it in this book of Ecclesiastes. He had absolute authority as a king. Think about it. When you have absolute authority, you can do whatever you want to. If you want to build something upside down, you can build it upside down because you're, you're a despot and you can absolutely decree it to be done. He had unlimited wealth, he had worldwide fame, and he had great wisdom, all of which provided him the means to be a philosopher with no peer. And he gave himself to the pursuit of wisdom. Not only did he have all those means, but the first chapter is going to tell us and the second chapter is going to tell us, I gave myself to it. He committed himself to find out what the purpose for you and me was on earth. And he had all these means to try. If a fool speaks of wisdom, we laugh at him. Because what does a fool know about wisdom? If a poor man speaks of riches, we justly laugh at him. If a slave speaks of authority, we laugh at that. If a man with one wife tries to tell us about women, we laugh at him. If a loser tries to speak about providence... We laugh because he's just excusing the fact that he's a loser. When Solomon speaks, we listen. He wasn't a loser. He had a thousand women. He had unlimited riches. He understood all there was about authority. And he had all wisdom. So when he speaks and when he writes, and when God gives us these inspired words from his life, we listen. The world can listen to E.F. Hutton. We'll listen to King Solomon, the son of David. He lived about 900 B.C. When I say about, it's because I'm just, he lived 70 years, approximately. And so, I'm just telling you, it was around 900 B.C. That was 500 years before Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, who were all in the 3rd and 4th centuries B.C. If those Greek philosophers ever get a single statement right, it's because they're copying Solomon. He was 500 years before them. If confusion ever says anything right, I meant Confucius. If confusion ever says anything right, it's because he stole it from Solomon, because he came well after Solomon. Right. 
Am I making fun of him? Absolutely, I'm making fun of him. Anybody that would teach his people ancestor worship is totally out of their mind. Anybody that would be an agnostic and teach against the identity of a monotheistic God like Jehovah of the Jews is out of his mind. He's confusion. And he's left a whole chunk of the world in confusion. Unless some of those have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and found true wisdom and knowledge that are hid in him. Your ancestors can't do anything for you. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, it, it doesn't say, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Love your dead ancestors and offer sacrifices to them. Try to seek them through witchcraft. It says, fear God and keep His commandments. Amen. Not your ancestors' commandments. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Right. Never forget that the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest philosopher of all. And while the book of Ecclesiastes does not mention Jesus Christ, and only by very indirect reference do we see anything or any need for redemption or a Messiah, that was not the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes. There are other books with that purpose in the Bible. Let me remind you that the book of Esther does not have the word God or Lord in it. But when you read the book of Esther, are you aware that God and the Lord are very active in the book of Esther? Very much so. But the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than Solomon. Right. Somebody will ask, did Solomon write Ecclesiastes before or after his great apostasy when his wives turned away his hearts from worshiping Jehovah to worship other gods? And my first answer is going to be to you, it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter. I can give you so many arguments on both sides of that that it just ends up being confusion. Right. You cannot prove it from a Bible when Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't bear one bit on the sense of any sentence in the book of Ecclesiastes. It does not help us understand what he's trying to convey through that book. So I'm just going to leave it. There's going to be plenty in the outline. If you want to look at the arguments on both sides, there'll be plenty of things for you to think about, but it doesn't matter. What we really want is the sense of those words so that we can know the purpose for our lives and the profit that God has given us under the sun and the hope that we have in the future and how we ought to live. The book of Ecclesiastes or the preacher. We have a preacher prepared by God, inspired by God, sent to us free of charge so that we can humble ourselves and tremble before these words because these words deal with the whole matter of our existence and they come to a glorious conclusion and again, I want to say that every one of your children should know Ecclesiastes 12:13. It should be one of the foundation verses for their lives so that whenever they face a false-ism or a false philosophy, they'll remember that the whole issue of their lives, the conclusion of the whole matter, is to fear God and keep His commandments. Right. This is the whole duty of man. We'll go further when we come back.